Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. So today, we'll be celebrating International Women's Day with a steamy story about menopause. We'll examine how big pharma companies, or one big pharma company, games the U.S. patent system to hang on to their cash cow product way past the date it should have gone generic. And of course, I'll have answers to your emails and calls and Someday soon, in the not-too-distant future, your tweets once I figure out how to log in. However, it's always good if you want to go to at KSQDFM. On Twitter, you'll find the lineup and promotionals about what's coming up uh, on the station. So I'm going to start with uh, an article that I actually read in The Economist recently. Uh, By the way... I want to put in a pitch for it. It's a, it's a really good news magazine. It's not just dry economics. Oh, there's plenty of that, but you can just turn the page. Uh, however, I do get very good news there, and occasionally the science and technology pages end up in this program. So credit where credit is due. Uh, this This article really talks about doctoring data, and not doctors doctoring data, but scientists doctoring their data. And this is why I don't like uh, meta-studies, where they put together multiple studies and then pick and choose and then review and then rerun the statistics to try to get statistical significance. You're gaming the system, and if there is an error in one of the studies that you put in there, you actually compound and magnify the error. Uh, As you'll learn later, as I go through this story, many of the guidelines that we currently use in medicine are based on falsified data. And if you take the ones that have been shown to be falsified out and rerun the data, those guidelines look a lot less well supported. So let's go back to 2011. Uh, Professor of Obstetrics and GYN at Monash University in Melbourne, Ben Moll, came across a retraction notice for a study on uterine fibroids and infertility that had been published by a researcher in Egypt. Uh, The journal that published it was retracting it because, get this, it contained identical numbers to those in an earlier Spanish study, except that Spanish study, that had been about uterine polyps, not uterine fibroids. The author, as it turned out, had simply literally cut and pasted copies, uh, parts of the polyp paper and simply changed the disease and gotten it published. Well, that got Dr. Mull's back up and he started, uh, he's he's an editor, or was at that time, an editor of the European Journal of OBGYN, so he frequently was a peer reviewer for papers. So he went to two of the papers that were sitting on his desk in the inbox and looked at them looking for uh, fabricated data and found it and rejected them. But a year later, he came across the same papers with the same fishy data, uh, except it had been changed a little, and it was published in another journal. So... 
he got together with a group of authors and he realized that it was only a few authors that were doing data fabrication, but they were doing it a lot. Uh, when he started to just look whether the numbers added up in the tables, uh, he found, well, for example, in a study on babies, he found a very implausible 40 to 60 ratio of babies, uh, which you shouldn't see in a large number if the mothers had been selecting, selected by random. Another flag that he saw in, in fake studies was eye-popping speeds, really getting those clinical dry, trials done quickly. Now, if you've ever been in a clinical trial, as I have, and uh, been a, a principal investigator, you'll know that it is really hard to get a trial to completion, and it takes a long time. So, so far, they've found about 750 papers in recently published journals that they flagged, and about and they sent those to all of the journals, and about 80 of them have been retracted. But many of these papers had been included in systemic reviews, and that's the sort of research I was talking about, where you look at a bunch of different papers, and you take a look at the conclusions, and you say, well, you know, the preponderance of the data would suggest that we should be doing this. Now, that can be dangerous. One example of this was steroid injections being given to women who were undergoing C-sections to deliver their babies. Now, these injections are intended to prevent breathing problems in the newborn. And the pra- there's been some concern about that. That was how I was taught to manage it. But then research came out saying, you know, that might actually injure the infant. But there was a review published in 2018 by Corcoran, which is the charity for the promotion of evidence-based medicine. And when Mull and his colleagues looked at this review, they found three studies that they had already noted as unreliable, informed Cochrane, and then three years later, they revised their review, taking out those three questionable studies, and the benefits of the drugs evaporated. They were no better than placebo, and between the time that you look at risk-benefit, clearly not warranted to be giving those steroids to all of those babies. But it had made its way into the standard of care. There's, uh, this is looking at data, you know, 1,900 papers uh, have been retracted. In 2022, about 2,600 retractions uh, have happened. That's doubled since 2018. So the misconduct is uh, happening, and the clinical guidelines are being affected by this. So it takes a long time to get stuff retracted, and... Uh, if one in 50 papers are unreliable and only one in a thousand are getting retracted, then there's really a problem. Then there's basically two f- sources of these fabrications. One are those that are claiming to report clinical trials that never even occurred. And often they copy published papers and then substitute the gene or the disease that the legitimate paper was using. So they've got data, it looks legitimate, except it's somebody else's data, and they just literally filed off the serial numbers and said they were studying a different disease. And there's about 200 people out there who account for almost a quarter of all of those 19,000 retractions. And here's where it gets really scary. Most of the most prolific fraudsters are senior scientists at big universities or hospitals. Huh? You say, how can that be? Well, 
probably because the way they got to be senior scientists at these hospitals was by publishing a lot. And there is a huge career incentive in science. A long publication list is critical for promotion. And if you switch institutions to get a better job, you better have a lot of published articles. But the journals, you know, they want to publish studies that show strong, positive results. So if you do the research and it isn't a strong, positive result, well, you can be tempted to go and diddle the data a little bit. For example, you might want to claim that perhaps people dropped out. Uh, A research uh, done in America said uh, only 2% of the scientists, one out of 50, admitted to falsifying data, but 14% knew they had someone who did, and a third, 30%, Uh, confessed to cheating a little bit, like dropping inconvenient data points based on a gut feeling or making, um, this is really key, and this happens a lot, and it's you're just not supposed to do this, making changes in the study's protocol while it's in progress. And so we've really got a problem in a study in England that was uh, anonymous. One in five reported having fabricated data. In the Netherlands, 10% admitted that they'd fabricated data. And another thing to understand is that these research groups that we're talking about at these prestigious institutions, they often have, uh, they often work in collaboration with other legitimate groups. And so there's a huge kind of domino effect for the junior researchers who get snookered. Uh, by a retraction, they may not have done the one who they not may not have been the one to who cheated with the data, but they've got the shadow of fraud hanging over them, and that can really make or break a career. So here's another one. This was an old one about why this is such a terrible thing. Critical ill patients undergoing surgery were once given starch infusions. This was Dextran to boost their blood pressure. This was all coming out of research by a guy named Joaquin Bolt. And uh, his fabrications were discovered, and and he essentially faked his data. Giving those starch infusions to those patients actually caused kidney damage and put more than a few people into heart failure, and even a few died. And for more than a decade in Europe, we've been giving, they've been giving beta blockers before surgery to reduce heart attacks and strokes. And that was based on a study from 2009 that was fabricated. And by one estimate, this may have caused 10,000 deaths a year in Britain. Another study showing giving a high dose sugar solution reduced mortality after head injury was, uh, well, they failed to find the evidence, uh, that any of the trials were actually done. So, I mean, it was completely faked even to the, and nobody checked it. That's the thing. These quote unquote peer reviews, uh, they aren't worth the paper they're written on if they can't spot something like, did the trial actually happen? If you, they're not looking is basically what I'm saying. And this is a, this is very disturbing to me. Because, as you know, I'm science-based, and I guess I'm one of those people who trusts other people because I truly am shocked. So up to one quarter of the papers that 
uh, have been written could possibly be fatally flawed. And part of it lies with the reviewers. The reviewers don't do their job. And it's a big job, and they don't get paid for it. And I understand that, but maybe we need to start paying them or start paying somebody because all of this money that's being spent, all of this work, it's it's crazy. Here's a study where uh, Western blots, so th- these are electrophoresis gels. They're used to study and separate proteins. And a little bit like fingerprints, no two Western blocks should ever look alike, but uh, one of the microbiologists who's turned full-time detective uh, found, looked at 100,000 papers, 100,000 papers, and she found evidence of, like, cheating with Western blots, publishing somebody else's images and saying uh, that have already been published elsewhere in 6,500 of them. And that doesn't, and that's, just really simple cheating. What about image manipulation? We have all of these abilities now to fake things. Back in 20, uh, 2006, there was a landmark study published by Dr. Lesney that provided crit- critical evidence around the uh, beta amyloid hypothesis for Alzheimer's. And this particular article really turned the field towards beta amyloid. We spent 20 years farting around devising antibodies against beta amyloid using mutant mice that accumulated beta amyloid. And you know what? It was faked. We have been barking up the wrong tree because of bad data for two decades. And the amount of money we've thrown at this problem and the amount of money we've wasted Recently, I've shared with you studies about tau protein and how that probably is the key factor in beta amyloid because there's always been, you know, wait, it should work in humans, but then we give it to the humans and it doesn't work. Well, now we know why. Researchers responding to pressure have falsified their data. Here's one more for you, and then I'll get off my soapbox. You will remember a little thing called hydroxychloroquine. Well, back in 2020, a uh, professor at the University Hospital of Marseille, Didier Raoult, published uh, a lot of work, and it was published in The Lancet, which had tem- which was well enough faked that it got past the reviewers, and it was peer-reviewed. So whatever that means. And uh, he showed really strong data in favor of hydroxychloroquine. Well, we all know where that went, right? Enough said. And there is a secondary black market for research papers. They're called paper mills. And what they do is they you pay them to write you a paper. They put your name on it. At like ghostwriters uh, for a novel, and then you get it published, and you get the credit, and you get promoted, and that's how comes fraudsters end up in top universities, because they cheated their way in. Wow. Pretty amazing, huh? So let's go to our uh, first email, which just came in at that uh, email direct to the station. And this is a cold read, so let's read it. Dear Dr. Dawn, my wife and I are in our 70s and wanted to try intermittent fasting. 
based on a recent broadcast by you. I think we aired in our approach. We skip breakfast and eat lunch at 12.30 and dinner eating by 8.30, go to sleep at midnight. As that is that bad? I must confess now that we like to eat... I must confess now that we like to eat low-fat popcorn while watching a movie at night and would miss it if we changed to an 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. time frame. Well, uh, I guess what I would say about this, sir, is that it's important not to have a lot of calories at night. So if you could... Maybe stop the popcorn at 7 and go to bed a little bit earlier. That might work for you. I understand uh, uh, being retired, you can sort of work your schedule as you choose. But if you're going to sleep at midnight that's and you finish your dinner at 8.30, you probably still haven't completed your entire gastric emptying, so you're pro- and your body is still absorbing those calories. So you're getting in the way of the uh, the biggest benefit because it's the deep sleep that is when you do the most detoxification and the the most uh, autophagy, which is where you get your body gets hungry and it doesn't have any calories coming in from the gut anymore. So it goes looking for scraps. It goes through the refrigerator, cleans it out, and looks for leftovers. And those leftovers are, that it, that's a cleansing for your body. You're getting rid of broken proteins and stuff that's lying around that when there's better food, the body, the cells will take the better food. So I really want to encourage you if you're at, at that age, if you want to get any kind of substantial benefit out of it, you may just have to watch your movie at a different time or tape the movies, move everything earlier, watch yesterday's uh, television uh, and shift your time to really get all of the benefit that you're hoping for with intermittent fasting. Another thing I want to say about intermittent fasting is that it's very important that you're not getting a lot of sugar when you're doing your intermittent fasting, it's not like you can live on Twinkies and ice cream. I know you don't know, you you wouldn't be doing that. But I have had a couple of people who are like, well, as long as I have my McDonald's hamburger and my French fries and my shake uh, in within, you know, a six hour period, I'm good. Right, Doc? And I'm like, no, not quite. So let's go to our next story. While we're on the subject of malfeasance, let's talk big pharma. So in 2016, a true blockbuster drug was poised to come off of patent. And the way the patent system works, you get 20 years after the drug is approved to sell it and get it out there and make your money. And then it becomes public domain and anybody who wants to can use it. And So we're talking about the drug Humira. This is one of the best-selling anti-inflammatory medications. Uh, It's used for rheumatoid arthritis. And back in 2016, it was going to expire. And regulators had already looked at a rival version of the drugs from a, a generic manufacturer and given it the blessing. And poof, 
that was going to push down the price from uh, way down because the price of that drug was $50,000 a year list. But instead of that price dropping, the opposite happened. The U.S., the holder of the um, U.S. patent, Humira, uh, Ab- AbbVie, blocked competitors. And for the next six years, while they were fighting a legal battle to block anyone from competing, they kept jacking the price up to $80,000 currently. And they orchestrated this delay by building a, a literal wall of legal obfuscation, intellectual property production, and suing the would-be competitors for patent infringement and then settling with them. But part of the settlement was to delay the uh, the rollout of the drug until 2023. Well, we're here now. But Medicare covers the cost of Humira for 42,000 patients. So they spent more than $2.2 billion on that drug from 2016 to 2019 than they would have spent if it had gone generic in 2016 when it was supposed to. And this has been used before. AbbVie didn't invent these, but the previous companies, it was much smaller potatoes. And what's happened with Humira is it's so outstanding because it was a lot of money on the table. 42,000 times 50,000 a year. No, let's make that 80,000 a year. Uh, that was worth a, hiring a lot of legal brains. Uh, Amgen piled up patents for its in, um, its Imbril, which is another anti-inflammatory drug of the same class. And these are tumor necrosis alpha blockers, by the way. And they managed to uh, delay a copy uh, a copycat version by 13 years. And there's a wonderful cancer drug called Cretuda and Merck and uh, the partners have sought more patents. You see, the patent expires in 2016, but what if I get another patent? And, and this is just nuts. Okay. So, so it, uh, the Humira was going to expire in 2016 uh, and the early patent said it could treat ankylosing spondylitis, which is a type of inflammatory arthritis. So in 2014, two years before expiration, AbbVie a- applied for another patent for a specific dose of Humira and to treat ankylosing spondylitis. And that application was approved. So they got 11 more years of patent protection beyond 2016. And they have been aggressive uh, about suing rivals. They've been aggra- they uh, they take them out in civil court for violating their patents, and they tie them up in court until finally the lawyers kind of say, "Okay, let's settle." And the settling leads to extensions of the uh, by the companies that have a generic. They're sitting on the shelf, but they agree not to run with it for to get out of the lawsuit and delay. And then they get a settlement for, you know, and everybody argues about how much that should be. But both corporations walk away with money. The people who get hurt are the people taking the drug. Here's a couple of stories. Here's a woman who 
lives in Crestwood, Kentucky, and she has a uh, she takes Humira for arth- for psoriasis, and she ha- she was employed for many years. Her employer's insurance plan kept her annual pay- payments to sixty dollars a year. When she retired, under Medicare rules, she she would have had to pay eight thousand a year, which she couldn't afford. Well, so she stopped the medicine, and now she's living off free samples of another similar drug that's being provided by her doctor, as long as they're free samples, she's okay. The minute those dry up, she's out of luck. Another woman uh, lives in Ohio, and she's delaying her retirement because of the Humira cost. She uh, talked to the uh, human resource people at her large employer. She takes it for Crohn's disease and colitis, which are not things that you can live with. And she never had to pay more than $5 for a refill. It turns out that the company was spending $88,000 a year. Now, this was, uh, this, this is crazy. And uh, one last story here. Uh, this one is an employee of a large company that self-insures. She's from Missouri. And when she... Uh, so what her employer informed her of was that she was, um, they, because they're self-insured, were paying 70000 a year for her drug. That's actually more than they were paying her for her work full-time. So the HR employee said, um, we have an idea. What they do now is every four months they fly her to the Bahamas where she goes to a doctor in the Bahamas to get a four-month supply of Humira and picks that up in a pharmacy there. And because the drug is so much cheaper anywhere outside the United States, because they don't let the company drug companies get away with stuff like this, guess what? That is way cheaper for her company. Fly her to the Bahamas and have her pick up the drug and fly her back. Now, If that's not a little bit insane, we're not living on the same planet. I'm going to take just a moment and read a quick email. This one from Kim in Santa Cruz. Juven World Wound Healing Product. I would like to know your thoughts on this wound healing supplement, Juven, for an elderly dementia patient. It contains the following ingredients, including glutamine and arginine. Two packets are recommended per day. So I took a look at that product, Kim. She has two questions. I'll get to this one first. And this is a orange therapeutic nutrition powder. So essentially, it's got a bunch of things that we think are good for wound healing. The micronutrients, uh, some collagen, not bad. Make sure the person's getting adequate protein. Arginine, which supports blood flow and vasodilation. So that's good. Uh, vitamin C, E, and B12, good. So essentially, there's nothing wrong with this except that you could get it a lot cheaper by just getting food. And so I'm recommending that if the, if you're having if the person's having nutritional problems, you probably could do could do this much cheaper by picking up uh, the powders for arginine and glutamine and collagen at a local health food store 
and giving the person a multivitamin or a liquid multivitamin. And so just to let you know that uh, I don't think you need to spend the extra money. Kim's next question, if you don't do well with MSG, do, do you avoid products with glutamine? And uh, the answer there is no, because MSG is monosodium glutamate. It's, the, it's not even slightly the same as, as glutamine. Glutamine is an amino acid. It's present in every time you eat a steak, every time you eat any protein, and it's a very different animal than glutamate. Glutamate is made from glutamine in the brain, and it's a neurotransmitter. And the monosodium glutamate has a neurotransmitter-like effect, which is to say it's excitatory, in some individuals. It literally depends on the subtle shape of the receptors in your brain, whether this stuff actually behaves like a neurotransmitter or whether it's neutral. All right, our second email comes from Sybil in Soquel. Dear Dr. Don, should older people take nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, NAD, or vitamin B3, not nicotinamide riboside? What is your opinion about these um, supplements? Well, Sybil, you can just take vitamin B3. You don't need to take the fancy stuff. There's no data that supports that it's better, and you, most, uh, like, all of us are able to use not to use nicotinamide. So just take the B vitamin complex and don't bother with the fancy stuff. Uh, and then, what do you think of the allegedly superior 100% bioavailable form of iodine, iliumodine, that Dr. Gabriel Cousins, MD, sells? There's a video uh, by Dr. Cousins about this product. And uh, if uh, not this product, can you recommend an iodine supplement and how much can we safely take a day? Okay, well, let's start with uh, bogus alert on the Ilumodine. It's expensive and it's it, we all can biologically process iodine. It's critical uh, to our health. It gets it, our, we're, we're able to use just the plain old iodized salt. The problem with iodine is that some soils are depleted from it and that certain vegetables, including, I might add, things like raw broccoli, can interfere with absorption of it, which in our, is not generally a problem unless you're a cow uh, and you're eating a lot of fodder that contains these iodine-blocking compounds. So... I use a product called Iosol. It costs uh, about $18 for a two-year supply. And you need, in terms of an iodine supplement, how much can we safely take? How much should we take? That's not a simple question. If your goal is to avoid a goiter, then you can take 150 micrograms uh, a day, and that will avoid a goiter. If your goal is uh, optimum uh, amounts of iodine for 
the healthiest possible functioning of the enzymes and your deiodinase and these other factors in your body that help keep you healthy, then probably about two milligrams is plenty. And two two to three milligrams is a very safe dose and you won't get into trouble with it. If you take large overdoses of iodine, uh, which is done when there's a nuclear meltdown at uh, Fukushima and you're exposed to a radioactive plume of radioactive iodine, yeah, that's the moment that you want to actually take a big wonking dose of iodine because a big wonking dose of iodine saturates the thyroid and it's unable to absorb any more iodine. There's also data, by the way, that Iodine helps reduce risk of breast cancer. It's a sort of anti-growth hormone for the breast, and the breast has a fairly high iodine uh, desire, if you will. It, it, it absorbs quite a bit of iodine, and when iodine's deficient, statistically you do see increased breast cancer risks. And when you look in uh, precancerous breast cancer or around the areas, you'll see iodine depletion or low levels compared to the general population. So getting enough iodine in your breast is probably a good idea. I feel like two to three milligrams is a very safe level. 20 to 30 milligrams used to be given in the 1930s and earlier uh, to try to pep up your thyroid and actually had the paradoxical uh, effect of slowing down your thyroid activity. And if you're hypothyroid, you don't want to take, you probably don't even want to take more than two milligrams if you're already hypothyroid and are on thyroid hormone in the first place. Okay, we're going to uh, caller Aline. Hello, Aline. Hello. Hi, how are you? I got your letter and had a chance to read it. Thank you. Aileen yes. uh, sent me a newspaper article about a supermarket that an art, an artist made mm-hmm. everything in it from discarded plastic that she found wandering around the neighborhood. So how crazy is that? A really massive installation uh, art. Yes. Well, I sometimes feel like when I walk through the par- the supermarket, uh, it is made of plastic. <laughs> oh, God, yes. Well, I um, um, wanted to mention that I'm always in, in intellectual awe with all women doctors, women judges, women lawyers, um, even women police women. Um, I wanted to know, and I vaguely, uh, so slightly remember reading some research on marijuana effects to the contrary to feeling good. Do you know, please, why some people have an allergy, an allergic reaction, uh, i.e. a fear and paranoia with marijuana? Oh, okay. Well, some. first of all, uh, there's a lot of factors involved in how we process a drug. Mm-hmm. There's, a, you know, there's bioconversion, there's detoxification. So how do you how do you break a drug down? Sometimes you can produce some rather weird molecules, but only certain people do that. Another factor is adulterants, and there are actually a whole lot of cannabinoids. I mean, you hear people talking about THC and CBD, but mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of other T, T's and B's and C's and D's and E's that are all combined in there, and they each have 
slightly different shapes molecularly. And so they fit into slight, somewhat different receptors, and the combination of them can behave in some unusual ways. In general, uh, at, in this era, I, I mean, I can speak from personal experience from uh, a long time ago when I was in college, that uh, certain pots and too much of any pot would tend to generate a little paranoia in yours truly. And... Uh, also blew out the last 36 hours of studying, so I didn't smoke very much. <laughs> it, was, it was like, oh, that was dumb. Uh, mm-hmm. But some people really do get a paranoid reaction, and I think it's probably because they're getting a sympathetic outflow reaction. It's pro- it could possibly be a mild allergic reaction of some kind, mm-hmm. and it tends to be dose-related. So mm-hmm. uh, there's definitely stuff going on. It's a thing, but usually... It's a. It's more with the very, very strong concentrated drugs, and it's usually in women or older people who have mm. lot who have less processing ability mm. for these agents. Just mm. mm. um, was somewhat enjoyable with the maybe two times I smoked marijuana in high school back in the sixties, but after that, and then. Supposed to people could fall asleep on it, but then I didn't uh, know that there was marijuana in the brownies. Or <laughs> well, oh yes, my a God, likely, a, Jeff, and a, I was up. I could took me four hours to get to sleep. Well, I think that might have been the combination of uh, mm. the chocolate and the caffeine, the theobromine, mm. and maybe the two interacted. I mean, I think you might have gotten a drug interaction there. Mm, so well, I would s- think so. I mean, I eat. Uh, I would guess some that some ch- ch- Trader Joe's wonderful chocolate brownies in bed and yeah. before I went to sleep, and I didn't. Uh, <laughs> well, no, I think it's the com- I think it's the combination. Combination. Huh? So, like for example, you don't give chocolate to dogs, right? Because oh, if, yeah. it can kill the dog, and Indeed. what's killing the dog is this compound called theobromine. Oh, and right. the theobromine is very high in chocolate as well. No. It, I mean, chocolate, it's also in coffee. Their caffeine is broken down into theobromine, so anything with caffeine in it. Mm. So you can get like a hyper-caffeine effect from the theobromine. Even though it's a breakdown product, it still has a stimulatory effect. Now, suppose you took a an agent that interfered with your ability to break down the theobromine in chocolate. Well, even that agent would therefore cause you to have a, a heightened um, agitation from the theobromine. And if, it, if that compound, and I haven't looked this up, but I suspect that the interaction there uh, might be part of it. Maybe that's one of the reasons people, you know, well, I guess that's mainly they use brownies to cover the taste because, you know, it... The pre this was this is the trick before there were gummies. By the way, gummies mm. in general. I'm just going to get back on that soapbox. I never mm. it's never far mm. from me. But gummies in general, if, to take your your supplements, you're turning your supplements into candy, and there's a bunch of dye in those gummies, which I don't really really don't approve of. Mm. Uh, and there's a bunch of other gooey you know things that are going to inter that are going to slow down the absorption and possibly interfere with the absorption of the nutrients that you're trying to get. And so I, 
I'm really against gummies. If you're going to take something for medicinal purposes, take it in the form of a tincture, mix it with water, Mm -hmm. mix it with tea, just drop it on your tongue behind your taste buds like I do with all my Chinese herbs. You know, it's my bottle. I can stick the I can stick the dropper in my mouth and squirt it, mm-hmm. squirt it past my taste buds. Some of the Chinese herbs I take sometimes are nasty. Indeed. <laughs> let's let's well, just put one, it that way. Yeah. In my preface, I was mentioning I forgot to mention that I'm also in great awe of more and more and more women vet, veterinarians. But actually, some twenty or five years ago, in Santa Cruz County. There were more women vets at the time than there were women human doctors. Oh yeah, physical physical. Yeah, doctors. I was I was around here back then, and there were there were yeah. like four of us. <laughs> oh yeah, it was crazy. Oh wow. Well, right. any, anyway, enough well, reminiscing. Just want to mention there's a wonderful all women staff vet clinic over on River Street. All uh, right, you've done your pitch. There's now. a wonderful Doctor Sugar is her name is one of them. Aline, I'm going to say okay. good night. Bye bye. Okay, so International Women's Day, and uh, let's see, I just ranted about uh, gummies, but I don't know if I can find my, oh, I let's uh, not waste time on that. I did promise you the hot news about menopause. So much of what we know about menopause comes from a study that um, started in 1994, Study of Women's Health Across the Nation, SWAN, it's called. And that's 3,000 women, so it would be nicer if it were more. But it has found some interesting correlations. One of the ones that I found most remarkable and interesting was that women with frequent persistent hot flashes are at uh, at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. And uh, it was SWAN, that confirmed that, that your lean body mass declines and fat increases during the transition, even if you hold your weight steady. Weightlifting, my friends, weightlifting, that's how you avoid that. And it's very important to do heavy resisting, not the light little, you know, tiny barbells, uh, but stuff that burns at after 12 reps and you're done, right? Uh Now, what are hot flashes? Well, recent discovery, we now understand what hot flashes are. As estrogen declines in the brain's hypothalamus, which is kind of your master thermostat, it regulates your thyroid hormone, it it makes you throw up when you eat something bad, it regulates your temperature and makes you have a fever when you've got an infection, so... The hypothalamus is, you know, definitely the climate control of the of the body. Certain neurons actually enlarge in reaction to the declining estrogen, as if the estrogen was keeping them down. Which, if you stop and think about it, well, this this enlargement of the neurons agitates sections of the brain involved with temperature regulation in the thalamus, and you get these hot flashes. I will also point out that men tend to be hotter in bed, you know, when you're lying down, they, I'm always fighting with my husband. I'm, you know, I want to turn the the temperature up in the room. We're under covers. So I don't think, I don't think body surface mass, uh, you know, surface to mass ratio is actually a factor here. But I'll tell you, it's a thing. My feet are always cold. He's like, oh, I'm so hot. And He is kind of hot, but that's a different question. Uh, 
I think that this estrogen sitting on the temp on the heat on the temperature regulation and suppressing those neurons could be a factor. One of the good things about menopause was that uh, I didn't uh, my hands and feet weren't as cold as they were before menopause. Maybe I maybe we got something there. So. You probably know, if you're a regular listener, that a baby girl is born with every single uh, ova, egg cell, in her ovaries that she's ever going to have. She's born with them. And surrounding these cells are, are some other cells called granulosa cells. And these produce hormones like estrogen. And as the eggs decline and become less numerous, the they don't stimulate the granulosa cells and so you start to see a decrease in estrogen production, even though the signals from the uh, pituitary gland may actually be going up. The response is declining because of that lo- absence of local stimulation. So you get uh, irregular menstrual cycles, and that's usually starting somewhere in the 40s, and we call that perimenopause. And we used to measure FSH, but it turns out that hormone in the pituitary that stimulates the ovaries fluctuates and you really doesn't matter anyway because the level the what really matters is the granulosa cells response and that we don't have a measurement for besides looking at estrogen levels so we've most people know about hot flashes a lot of people uh don't realize how variable they are some women just walk right through them and some are very very impacted and Depression goes up a lot, probably related to the effects on sleep, which are substantial. And, of course, there are, diff- there are things about sleep that can't be helped, but cutting back on caffeine and alcohol is key. And for many women who are experiencing sleep problems around menopause, that's enough to really get them much better. And, you know, hot flashes are a real trial I'm a great fan of using estrogen. Now, back around 2002, there was a thing that came out called the Women's Health Initiative. We've talked about, already on this program, we've talked about gaming the data. Well, the people who did the WHI, I remember it quite well, they gamed the announcement. So they published a press release a couple of days before the then paper copies of New England Journal of Medicine. You didn't have an internet copy that you could just pull down. So they they dropped this 48 hours before the paper was out. It made front page news in a lot of newspapers, and the doctors had nothing to respond with. You couldn't have read the paper if you'd wanted to, unless you were maybe an editor at the New England Journal. So as a result... They caught everybody flat-footed, and anyone who was in pra- who was practicing medicine back then remembers the, the just being inundated by phone calls from your patients for whom you'd prescribed estrogen who were freaking out because suddenly the study said increased risks of heart disease, breast cancer, and stroke. It also said decreased results of colon for, for colon cancer, but that somehow never made it into the front page. Uh, But the study wasn't really looking at younger women. You weren't able to get into that study until you had stopped having hot flashes, which meant probably five or ten years after you went through menopause. 
And what we now know, and it's finally been admitted by medical authorities, is that there's a great deal of benefit in to, to your bones and to your cardiovascular system if you go on estrogen right at the time of menopause. And you don't have to have the hot flashes. You don't have to have the sleep disruption. You don't have to experience a drastic loss of your lean body mass. All of these things can be mitigated by using estrogen and progesterone as long as you use the bioidentical forms. There's no increased heart disease risk. That turned out to be a ghost. It was it was actually a ghost when you read the paper in 2002, but you got to read the whole paper, folks. If you don't read the whole paper and you just read the abstract, what you're reading is the spin. You're not reading the the meat and potatoes. And now I'm not even sure if I read the whole article that I can believe I'm getting the straight shot. So, yeah, I'm experiencing a little crisis here after uh, reading that article in The Economist, actually. So, of course, there's a new drug that's targeting those brain those those brain neurons that got big. A non-hormonal treatment designed to treat the brain being reviewed by the FDA, and it reduced weekly flashes by 45%. Well, that's great, but I wouldn't be the first one on my block to take it. Uh, I think we need to stop being afraid of using estrogen. Not that the Women's Health Initiative was a hoax, but let me give you the follow-up that was published to very little fanfare about three years later. There were two groups in that initial study, one group who were taking Premarin and uh, Progesterone in the form of a drug called Provera, Medroxyprogesterone, and it was called Prempro. That was what was being studied. There was another group that were just taking Premarin, uh, a form of horse estrogen, very similar to human estrogen in terms of being able to fit into our receptors, however. And that group, well, that one didn't get more breast cancer. In fact, at the end of the study, they had slightly less breast cancer and slightly less heart disease, which for me implicates the medroxyprogesterone, which was the factor that one group was taking, the one with more adverse events, and the other group wasn't. So you don't necessarily know what's going on until the study's finished. If you alter the protocol or you reveal the results ahead of time, you've already broken one of the rules of science. But I'll tell you that WHI, that was a career maker for the people who were in it. It really made a big, big difference uh, to their careers and uh, that may even have been one of the reasons that uh, they did that uh, early release. Maybe they understood what side of the academic, uh, well, where the academic butter was going to go on their bread, shall we say. A couple of short uh, updates at the end of this hour. They recently uh changed the recommendations for when you should get your first colorectal screening. Now, that screening can consist of a colonoscopy if there's a family history of multiple polyps or if, or hopefully not uh, rectal or colon cancer, but it could also consist of just a simple test for fecal immunoglobulin, that is to say antibodies against 
blood, very much like the COVID test, except instead of looking for viral, for spike protein, you're looking for blood. And if that immunoglobulin test is positive, little smear on the card, very easy to do, then you have to follow up with a colonoscopy. You should be starting to get that at 45 because uh, one in five new cases of colocancel in the United States are happening in people younger than 55. That's about twice the rate in 1995 when it was uh, 11%. Uh, so it's gone from, it's doubled. It's gone from, you know, 20%, it's now 20%. It was 11% in 1995. And 60% of patients are being diagnosed with an advanced stage of disease, and that's up from the mid-2000. And we're not really quite sure, could be access to care, but certainly the number of cancers in young people, the under 50 population, is going up. And that's a big problem. The overall incidence rate of colon cancer decreased by 46% from its peak in 1985 to, it was 66% uh, per 100,000 in 1985, and now it's down to 36% or 36 per 100,000 in 2019. Death rates have gone down 57%. That's great. We're catching it early. Some of that's the drop in smoking, and some of that's the screening, because if you remove the polyps, they don't get to grow up to be cancer. But 2% per year increases in people under 50, and more people under 50 are dying of it going up about 1% a year. And in many patients, it's already spread. And uh, distant disease is going up, uh, has gone up 3% in younger people, while it went down substantially in people 65 and older, probably because of access to care once you're Medicare age, and uh, the change in the costs. Obesity is probably a factor. And again, cancer, this cancer disproportionately affects people of color. Incident rates are high in uh, indigenous Alaskans and Native Americans and blacks. And uh, blacks are 41 per 100,000. Whites are 35 per 100,000. Uh, indigenous Alaskans are 85 per 100,000. We don't understand what these differences mean but we don't like the trends. So uh, uber-processed food, less fiber, that's probably a factor. And certainly, uh, if we were going to guess, since we haven't really taught people how to cook for at least a generation, it's the younger people who are more likely to eat the ultra-processed food. So maybe it's more of a factor than we realize. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.